Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast, presented by Courtroom Sciences, a podcast for the defense bar about the intersection of science and litigation. Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast. This is episode four. I am Dr. Bill Kanaski, litigation consultant at Courtroom Sciences, and we've been having a lot of fun with these podcasts, particularly the series that we have on the nuclear verdict topic. I think it's the hottest topic in civil litigation right now. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's worried about it. And we have a very special guest today, Mr. Bob Tyson from uh, Tyson Mendez in San Diego, California. Uh, Bob has just come out with a book, which I'm going to let him uh, talk about a lot today. But it's really the first publication that's really serious um, about the nuclear verdict and uh, he's got the playbook here on how to uh, for the most part suppress these uh, if not eliminate them and he did a really nice job Um, like I said before we talked with Dr. Speckart uh, last time uh, two sessions with Dr. Speckart so this is our episode four uh, in this series that will probably go on and on because there's there's so much to talk about but um, we're really really happy to have uh, Bob with us today. Uh, Bob, can you hear me? I sure can, Bill. Thank you very much. Now, this is a really exciting... Uh, since since 2009, when The Reptile came out, The Reptile kind of shook the planet. And now, 11 years later, now it's the, the nuclear verdict that seems to be uh, shaking the planet. Uh, I, I was telling our audience that uh, I got your book yesterday. You, you, you really did a phenomenal job with this book. But before we get into that, I always like to hear about the person I'm talking to. Tell us a little bit about your firm the types of cases that you handled. And I, I, I always like to ask this question, when was it in your life where it clicked when you said, you know, I want to be a trial attorney? Because that's different for everybody. Yeah, no, thank you very much. Um, how much time do we have? No, I'm teasing. Um, <laughs> you, you ask a lawyer to tell you about himself. That could cut me that, off, please. That's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But uh, no, I, I knew at a fairly young age, my mom was a was a legal secretary, and she worked for like a uh, a white shoe Wall Street law firm as a legal secretary, and she always wanted me to be one of those, and uh, <clears throat> so she got half of what she wanted. I became a, a lawyer, but I'm by no means a, a, an Ivy League uh, Wall Street lawyer, um, <clears throat> just a simple trial lawyer, which is what I always wanted to be. I had read a book called My Life in Court by Louise Neiser when I was about 13 years old, 12, 13 years old, and understood most of it, but um, he was a famous uh, uh, trial attorney in the 50s, and I was just fascinated by it. So I I knew pretty early on that I wanted to be a trial lawyer. Um, Yeah, and and now I'm pretty much... Um, always been a defense lawyer my entire life. I've only had one plaintiff's jury trial in my life, um, <clears throat> and that turned out quite well. Uh, but it was very scary. So I, I've got great respect <laughs> for the for the plaintiff's bar. Um, absolutely, for sure. Absol- and, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and and so we're we're a defense firm. I had worked at a couple of uh, mid-sized defense firms. Went out on my own in 1998. Um, had one insurance client at the time and have now, uh, however many years later, built it up to uh, we're 150 lawyers 
plus uh, in seven different states with 10 different offices. And uh, Pat Mendez and I have been partners since about 2002. We've been best friends for a longer time than that. And uh, it's, there's been a lot of challenges, but it's been, it's been a lot of fun, very rewarding. Well, excellent. Congratulations on your, your success. And uh, let's start talking about the book. When, when exactly did you come up with this idea about writing a book on the nuclear verdict topic? Yeah, I, you know, w with all this growth, we, we have a, a management consultant named Dr. Mort Shavitz, who's amazing. I call him the lawyer whisperer. And he had suggested it maybe three years ago. You know, you should write a book about all these things because we had internally in writing, uh, we call them the 10 Tyson and Mendez methods, 10 Tyson and Mendez methods for um, really how to defend lawsuits. And it was, it was 10 things that we thought and, and still do that, that we do better than other defense firms. And, and so it comes from a career of, uh, of learning and going up against some of the best plaintiff's lawyers in the country and learning from what they're doing. And, and sometimes you know, a lot of our ideas come from either doing the same thing as the plaintiff's bar is doing or doing the opposite, but doing something. Um, that's part of the problem is that no one's been doing anything, uh, certainly since 2009, like you said. So very, that's a very good point. Yeah, that's a yeah. very, very good point. And um, so I, I started your book yesterday and in the introduction, about, and by the way, for our audience, you got to get this. This is a very, I love your writing style because this is a very up in your face, very candid book. <laughs> you are not holding back anything. And you're very, very, it's, personal. it's, it's personal. uh, you're very, very candid, uh, with your thoughts and your opinions. And the first thing that struck me, I think it was on maybe the second or third page. I want you to tell me about greed and bad lawyering. Greed and bad lawyering. I thought that when you said the two primary reasons these disastrous verdicts are happening are greed and bad lawyering. The moment I read that, I'm like, this guy and I, are, we're on the same page. <laughs> well, you, you know what? So many people, you know, so many people talk about tort reform and, and I get it. Um, I get it. I'm not going to be able to do that. You know, write your congressman. I, that, that's not me. Um, mm -hmm. But w what I've said to folks sometimes is, you know, people complain about these crazy verdicts and, and the, the system's broken. It's not fair. We need a whole new system. And, and what I've, I've said to some people is like, have you ever gotten like a good deal in life? I, I said to some real estate people, have you, have you ever like gotten a good deal on a piece of property where you, you ended up selling, you bought your house at a reasonable price and sold it for more a couple of years later? Like, and, and you made a lot of money. Um, on, on a, do you think that the real estate system is broken? No, you were just better than the other person. And that happens all the time in trial where it, it's two human beings going against each other and sometimes the other side's better. And then the other thing that happens is one side or the other sometimes gets greedy. You know, my biggest wins, we've offered millions of dollars. You know, I've had people say to me, um, how, do, how do you sleep at night? How do you live with yourself? You should have taken the money. You should have taken the money. You didn't. You didn't take the money. Um, so that's how I live with myself. We offered you millions, and you didn't take it. And now a jury, 12, 12 of your peers, decided you were never even entitled to that kind of money. So 
yeah, it's very personal with Phil. <laughs> well, no, yeah, and I've taken, I have the same attitude. And back when Reptile came out, I try to be the pioneer to create the anti-reptile system, which has been highly effective. And the plainness bar is not too happy with me. I can, I can tell you that. And they're not going to be too happy with you either. So, Oh, I, no, <laughs> no. And, and that is, you know, you wonder who's going to buy the book. And I did write it for the um, defense industry. But the plaintiff's bar will read it. And I'll tell you why. Um, we'll read it because the plaintiff's bar studies their trade. They do. They really do. I mean, they, they read David Ball on damages. They read the reptile theory. They read Nick Rowley's book. They read all the Jerry Spence books. And you ask defense lawyers, hey, have you read um, you know, David Ball on damages? Uh, I, I know what it is. You know, it's like, yeah. no, you've got, you've got to read these books. I've, I've read them all. You need to know what your opponents are doing. And the place bar is going to buy my book. That's for sure. And they're going to listen to this podcast too, and I don't care. <laughs> uh, good, good for them. But um, I'm glad that we're uh, together here, putting up the strong fight. And one thing that I see as a big problem in the industry, just to kind of dovetail off of what you just said, is, and this is a problem that is nationwide that I've been hearing from just hundreds of defense counsel, is that the development of the young defense attorney is nothing in comparison to the development of the young plaintiff attorney. I think the plaintiff's bar, I think they're training their young people a lot better than the defense side is. And particularly with reptile, all this training, I was given a reptile speech the other day and there was 500 people in the crowd and then they're all defense counsel. And I said, raise your hand if you've spent a nickel on training, on becoming a better attorney, on giving a better opening statement, on learning how to cross-examine an adverse witness. Tell me, what, how much training have you put into your career since you've been licensed? And not one hand went up. Not one hand. Can you talk a little bit about the, the lack of the development of these young... Because there's guys that are starting to retire now, or they want to retire, and they can't. Because the second chair that they've been with for years has tried three cases. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a real problem in the industry. The other problem is that folks that are getting to my age on the defense side, or I mean, I'm 55, but, you know, in their 40s or 50s and, and have had some success on the defense side, are flipping over to the plaintiff side. You know, why am I getting uh, yeah. paid by the hour um, when I could just get be getting big chunks doing the same exact work just the other side so there there is a a bit of a um you know a drain of of, of talent that's going on and so you know th this book is part of that as well that in the defense side of things traditionally you have a good trial lawyer and he will share what he knows with whoever second chairs with him who's ever helping him um, and so, you know, maybe one other person in the firm, two other people in the firm learn from this excellent defense trial lawyer. Um, we're, we're changing that in our firm. We have a whole TM university where we, we have our own internal training on everything that's in the book, but then also what you were talking about, um, which is their skills in general. And this year for the first time, we're rolling out a trial academy just within our firm. And, and ultimately what I you asked how the book came about, you know, it, it hit me like, look, you're sharing it with, you know, the hundreds of lawyers in your firm. There is a sense of justice uh, that 
a lot of these verdicts are simply just not fair. They're not fair to anyone. Correct. Um, they're, they're unnecessary. So why not just share it with the world? Why not share it with all defense lawyers? And, and I get it. You know, I give a lot of speeches to defense attorneys like you do. And it's some of my toughest audiences because I, <laughs> I, I get it. Why, why do you want someone else on your defense panel coming in telling you how to try a lawsuit? You've been trying them for 20 years or 30 years. And why do you need to hear from Bob Tyson? I get it. But um, we need to do something. So hopefully, hopefully they'll listen to the book and, and listen to you and me a little bit. I hope so. And I'm, I'm glad that you said that about your trial academy. A lot of law firms are starting to figure this out. And they're inviting me as a faculty member, which I love to do, to, help, you know, to, to help these attorneys develop. And I think everybody, and again, your book kind of alludes to this, is I think as the defense, I think everybody's got to take a long look in the mirror because we're falling behind. <laughs> and I think that we've caught up a little bit, but I think the training... Uh, going forward is going to be going to be really important. The other thing that I've noticed that you know all too well is these plaintiff attorneys talk to each other. They talk after wins, yeah. and most impressively, they talk after losses, and they share their notes and they share their tactics. And what do, what do uh, defense attorneys do? They compete with each other. They they hide things. Yep. Uh, and so the dissemination of information. Um, is not really what it should be for the defense bar like it is the plaintiff's bar. Um, I'd like I, to get some... Go, go ahead, Bob. No, I was just going to say, I yeah. don't know that I'll be able to change that, Bill. You, you <laughs> did it. It's a competition. Those those plaintiff's lawyers are, are, are not competing against each other for the most part. And in fact, if they help each other, they're more likely to get more business, which is the exact opposite on the defense side, it unfortunately. Is. So, um, you know, we, we make our money on volume. You know, we take lesser rates than some others. And, you know, to do it, we, we make our money on volume. We make our money on the next case. So that's very different, very different than the plaintiff's bar. But with yeah, that they, said, yeah. I wrote a book, so <laughs> I'm sharing. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're actually, uh, we're getting started and, and we're writing articles and doing these podcasts and doing a lot of webinars to hopefully get the defense bar um, you know, more engaged um, yes, into, into, into sharing information. Let me ask you a question because this, uh, this is, it, it came up in your book and it's, this is another kind of hot button issue. Um, the inability <laughs> or, or I'm trying to think of the right word here. Um, I think inability is the right word or just the philosophy of the insurance defense industry, not letting people like you develop your younger attorneys because they want Bob. They want Bob Tyson. And you go to your client like, yep. hey, I, I'm trying to get these younger guys, you know, up to speed, get their talents uh, honed. And tell me a little bit about your experiences with an insurance company saying, oh, no, 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 don't do that. And then that ends up really hurting you in the end and your firm. And, and ends up hurting the insurance industry as well um, because – they're facing the same problems that defense attorneys are facing, which who's going to try the cases 10 years from now. Um, now it'll probably still be me cause I'll be 65 <laughs> and hopefully still around, but how about 20 years from now? Um, but yeah, no, it, it's a struggle and I get it. You know, a lot of, a lot of issues in the world come down to money bill. And yep. if you, if you think about it, um, if you're an insurance company and you can get a junior partner, for X and you can get Bob Tyson for $30 more an hour. Oh, why not? Um, 
right? I mean, yeah. why not? But, but again, that, that's a here and now decision. It's a purely economic decision. Um, one thing that we're doing in our firm uh, is we are trying to be the Mayo Clinic of law firms. So I love it. What, I love it. Yeah. And what that means is, you know, if, if you've got a, a, a medical problem that, that's so, um, so egregious and so difficult, you know, your personal doctor will send you to the Mayo Clinic. And you show up at the Mayo Clinic, you've got your file, and the Mayo Clinic gets you the best care that you need. They will find the right doctors in, in each of the um, different specialties for you. You don't, go to the, you don't go to the Mayo Clinic and say, um, I want Dr. Smith. You know, they, they come up with a course of treatment for you. And so that's what we're trying to do. You know, our clients come to us. Here's our problem. Here's our case. And we're trying to get them the best team possible and that they don't get to pick, you know, Bob Tyson or a few of our other trial partners. But, but on the flip side, it's one thing to say that, but it's another thing to do it in practice. And that's where the whole TM University comes in and, and um, you know, our trial academy. So uh, we, we, we want to be able to give them the best as well. And that's excellent. And I guess as I, I love the analogy too. I guess courtroom sciences is trying to be the Cleveland clinic of jury consulting doing the same thing. Um, yeah. I was given a speech the other day and a lot, you know, cost, particularly with insurance companies, um, not so much maybe in-house corporate, that's a different animal. Um, but cost always comes up and the whole, we want to save money mentality, which is difficult because the claims guy, you know, the claims guy handling the file doesn't want to spend 50 grand on a mock trial to really adequately prepare for trial or to adequately, you know, uh, prepare for mediation or assess the case. Whereas the guys on the other end of the hallway, the indemnity guys, you know, they're the ones that are going to pay out the millions of dollars <laughs> if they yeah. lose. And so you have this, the person, the person that's funding the file and paying for the attorneys and paying for the jury consultants, they don't really interact with the other guy in the back end, the guy that has to write the big check. So I do think from a uh, uh, insurance defense system, I think the plaintiff attorneys are totally taking advantage of this, knowing that they can probably out-prepare most defense teams because their system's very different. Wow. That, that is a mouthful there, Bill. Um, <laughs> all of it completely accurate. I'm, I just, you know, we both work for the yeah. insurance industry at some level, so I have to be careful what I say of here. Of course. But let, 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 let me... Let me say this. Um, why don't we go to, back to 2009, like you mentioned. In yep. 2009, um, the, the reptile theory came out. Okay. Also, in 2009, um, the financial world pretty much came to an end. Uh, yep. the, fall, the fall, just a couple of months earlier, before 2009, um, all some of the biggest financial institutions in the world were crumbling and that includes insurance companies. You know, at, at a, yep. in 2009, we all owned AIG, all, all of us yep. Americans owned AIG. And so what happened was um, insurance companies had to get on the right footing, you know, and they yep. needed to secure up their finances and stuff. So at this same time when the plaintiff's bar has come up with a new and creative way to get larger indemnity awards, the insurance companies were focusing on expenses. And defense lawyers, look, I'm, I'm here to do what insurance companies want. I mean, we, we've become much more efficient as a law firm. We know our metrics. We can report our metrics to insurance companies. Um, we can do all that. 
But at no point in the last 10, 11 years has anyone said, any insurance company said, hey, you need to be working on indemnity. You need to be working on your trial skills. I mean, the reality is that our clients have a lot of power over over how we act. Um, and they've asked us over the last 10 years not to focus on runaway juries or nuclear verdicts. They've asked us to focus on cost. And, and, and we've done that. So it's, it's a two-pronged thing happened in, in 2009. And, and I think they're both related. I think you're absolutely right. And unfortunately, oftentimes it does take nuclear verdicts to, to wake people up and to change decision-making. And I'm hoping that that is going to to happen. I have a story for you, Bob. It's actually a corporate client. And you're right. 2008, 2009 is a disaster. And we've been working for this. They, they're, uh, they manufacture uh, heavy equipment. So I'm not going to say who they are. But they manufacture okay. heavy equipment. Uh, we had worked with them for 15 years prior to 2009. And we were they were very aggressive with uh, spending the money up front to do mock trials, to do focus groups, to have their fact and corporate witnesses and 30b6 witnesses going through our witness training program to make sure that they'd be solid at deposition and trial and over that 15 year period their highest verdict that was awarded against them was four million dollars over 15 years so we had a a very happy client okay because they're they're, the demands on these cases are just you know 50 75 hundred million well the economic uh, downturn came and they said, well, we're going to part ways with you guys because we want to save money. In the next year, Bob, they got hit for over $50 million, over 50 twice in the same calendar year. Why? Well, they stopped, the, stopped doing the mock trials. They stopped doing the focus groups. They stopped preparing their witnesses. And it goes to show you the amount of exposure that they faced was only going to increase. And so I think our philosophy, which I really get from your book is if you're going to win, you have got to be aggressive and you got to throw the first and probably second punch in this fight. Yes. Yes. And And it, it, it is a fight. It is a fight. Um, you know, our, our young lawyers, I, I think are often taken aback by what, what a trial is really like. And it's, it's generally not physical combat, but, um, it is, it is a form of combat. Um, and, you know, the other interesting thing is that for years, for many years, you know, I've been doing this 30 years, the plaintiff's bar always kind of hated us because we had all the money and, and we, we had all the resources and all that. It, that's also turned around the last 10 years. I mean, I, I, my firm goes to trial all the time without uh, using a jury consultant, without mocking it. And, and, these aren't cases where we've asked. We should mock this. Let's mock this. I haven't been to trial where plaintiffs have gone to trial without a mock um, experiment and, and testing and Never. Uh, money and time spent in, in forever. They mock everything. They mock. They know their themes to a T. They don't do just one mock trial. They're doing. They're testing different things. They're testing damages. They're yeah. testing liability. And and they're telling me. They're telling me on break. Oh yeah, I knew you were going to try that. Um, it's not going to work. We've already tested it. Now, I don't believe them necessarily um, because it, it is combat and there's a lot of sure. There's a lot of posturing. Um, but I do believe that they mocked trial. They, they, they mocked the case before they went to trial. They always do. So they are they are more prepared. 
Um, they, well, they want to find that lottery ticket. Resources. They want to find that lottery ticket. And what I'm trying to tell corporate America and the insurance industry is you have to invest up front because you got to find your loser. you got to, you got to find the one where uh, it's a loser. And we can empirically prove that through science by doing a, uh, a mock trial that's going to give you reliable and valid results. And the good thing is that some of our clients have come around and are starting to be very aggressive and boy i gotta tell you bob it really it changes everything when you when you walk into a courtroom well hell if you walk into a mediation and you know exactly what your case is worth you know what your pros and cons are and you that is heavy weaponry to have whereas if you don't really have that information in fact it kind of shocks me that a lot of um claims people in particularly they kind of go on a hunch of what a case is worth and they go on a hunch of what the key arguments or themes will be without testing it, maybe looking at history, whereas the plaintiff's bar is doing the exact opposite. They're testing all these cases. They're finding out what works. They're finding out, no, and this is really important, the plaintiff's bar figures out during their testing process how they're going to lose the case. That's what they figure out. There's a couple different ways to win, but they figure out how are we going to lose and get zeroed out. And they, they use that information to then build different strategy until they find the way to get the lottery ticket. And I'd like to talk, this is a perfect time to talk. Can you talk a little about this, this whole notion, which is somewhat new, but boy, is it growing, um, litigation, third-party litigation financing for the plaintiffs. Can you talk, because I think that is an absolute game changer, because when you have somebody running a hedge fund that is essentially buying plaintiff cases saying, hey, I'll give you a blank check. You go try the case. Don't worry about the consequences. It's turned the plaintiff's attorney. I mean, they're, they're doing some pretty ballsy things as far as their demands and the types of cases they're taking to trial. Yeah, it's um, it's quite a big deal right now. It's Again, it's one of the macro issues, which, quite frankly, I'm not going to be able to to change you know mm -hmm. you're it, it's another one of those you're, you're gonna have to write your congressman but i know that a lot of our clients are are really concerned about it and and want to know more about it in other words um th there are um clients that are, are pushing us to find out the relationship find out if there's litigation funding through discovery um and in fact have talked about you know, shouldn't they be included um, as a plaintiff? You know, as a party of interest, um, because they they have a stake in in the outcome of it. Um, I I don't know. Like I, I understand what the defense industry wants. I understand where they're coming from. I mean, one thing that could be another game changer um, is that there are there is a proposal in in many different states to allow non-attorney ownership of, of law firms. And yeah. I know that the, the consumer attorneys of California came out against it. So they, the consumer attorneys of California does not want there to be non-attorney ownership of law firms. Um, but it, it would kind of do away with the whole litigation funding thing that, that's under, under the radar right now, or not under the radar, under the microscope right, uh, microscope right now. Um, in other words, if if some of these law firms were able to be owned by uh, litigation funders, that's never discoverable. Um, yeah. You know, if I'm if I'm trying a lawsuit, they don't get to know. Uh, you know, does how much of Tyson and Mendez does Tyson own, or Mendez, or Mesolis, or someone else? Like, what does that have to do with whether my client hurt somebody? Um, so, 
reality is, you know, litigation funding is a big thing right now, but um, that could that could change if if there's non-attorney ownership and and plaintiffs law firms are are open to that or interested. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on that, but it's definitely a hot button topic that I know a yes. lot of clients, a lot of clients are worried about because they feel like you know it's not a fair fight if that's the case. If you have unlimited funding, and you know, you've heard the phrase "taking a knife to a gunfight," well, this is like taking a stick <laughs> up against the tank. Um, it's it's going to put yeah. you in a bad position going forward. Um, another topic that's come up, which I want to bounce off of you, and this has been around a long time, but I think is really related to the whole concept of the nuclear verdict, is the number of judicial hellholes that we have in this country. Because um, I am convinced, regardless of the amount of preparation, I think there are certain areas of this country that if you try a case, your odds of winning uh, are, are substantially lower <laughs> in some of these places like Philadelphia, uh, Memphis, some of your areas down there in California. Can you talk about how your strategy is when you have a case that's been filed in a in a uh, judicial hellhole? How do you handle those cases differently? Yeah, that that's a great question. Um, the, the reality is we, we we don't handle them much differently. Um, I. I you know, we study, I kind of geek out and read closing arguments in, in these nuclear verdicts for, for many years now. I read them on planes and I, I try not to watch them too much. You know, you can get them through that, uh, seems to be plaintiff owned, uh, CVN court video network. Yeah. Um, but to watch it can be just a little bit upsetting, you know, cause then you're back in the battle, but to read, it's not bad. And what I've found is there's a pattern in these cases, and I think I think the outcomes are are much higher in some of the you know Cook County and and downtown LA and and um, some other places Philly um, the the results are are higher, but the pattern's the same, and so so you need to break the pattern of of, of nuclear verdicts there. There are things that plaintiffs' lawyers are doing. Um, you know, they're incorporating the reptile theory, but but things have changed. The way they try cases in the last 10, 15 years has completely changed, and it's more effective in the so-called judicial hellholes. The outcomes are, are just greater um, than other places. But the methods they're using are, you know, are working across the country. I totally agree with you. And it, it is it is getting scary when you're reading. I mean, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but does Johnson and Johnson not get hit for over a hundred million dollars about every two weeks? I mean, it's a it's every. I mean, I see it every every I'm not week. Laughing. I look at, I, I'm not laughing. Call me Johnson and Johnson. Um, no, but yes, and that's social inflation right there, right? Yeah. You, you get you grow numb to a hundred and eighty million dollar verdict. Like you can't even keep them straight anymore. There's so many of them. It is crazy, and I do think there is a issue with the whole concept of money. I mean, you know, uh, Chris Bryant from the Chicago Cubs. I'm originally from Chicago. You know, he wants the Cubs to pay him four hundred million dollars to throw a baseball to hit a baseball. Um, some of these NFL quarter, you know, Dak Prescott wants forty five million dollars a year. I think you know when, when jurors, you know, the people every day watching Sports Center start to hear those numbers you know, day after day after day, I think they become numb to what this money is actually worth. Yeah. And those are the exact arguments that lawyers, plaintiff's lawyers are using. They are using 
the celebrities, uh, I think it was Arash Amanpour in L.A., uh, within the last year referenced the Kardashians and the fact that uh, one of the Kardashians is the youngest ever billionaire. And, you know, that's how society puts values on people. And, and he used that, you know, to get a significant award on behalf of his client. Um, so they're using it. But but there's something the defense can do. Um, we can, first of all, if you read, if you read closing arguments in uh, a nuclear verdict, the number one way, first of all, typically the, the biggest component of a nuclear verdict is, isn't economic damages, isn't, um, oh my gosh, can you believe that this, you know, poor innocent boy who, who's now, you know, in a wheelchair for life is, is having got, got $15 million and, and now all of his um, health care is going to be taken care of. All his treatment is going to be taken care of. No, that's, that's freaking justice. That's right. Um, yep. He should get that all taken care of. No, the, the, when people starts to maybe shock the conscience a little bit is when that, that same person gets $115 million and, and 100 of it is non-economic damages. So typically, you know, non-economic damages and sometimes punitive damages are the largest component of any runaway jury verdict, right? That's, that's the shocking part. So the question I would pose really hypothetically is how does your defense counsel argue non-economic damages? How, how are they arguing it? And I'll tell you, if you read nuclear verdicts, the number one, that, or the closing arguments in nuclear verdicts, the number one way that defense attorneys in America argue non-economic damages is they don't argue them. Exactly. It's unbelievable. No, they, they, will, they will spend weeks arguing the medicine and, and whether this young boy you know, really needs a wheelchair every every year or something. Um, that that's such a small component, and and ridiculous, by the way. This, yes. this kid's needs should be taken care of. If if you hurt him, right? Why, why are you why are you quabbling, quibbling over you know some of this care? You know, that I just read one where they were saying if if this poor boy got counseling, that um, he wouldn't need. Um, this is an $113 million verdict that if this poor boy had gotten counseling and some, um, some, uh, physical therapy, he wouldn't need as many diapers over the rest of his life. <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? Like, why is that your argument? Um, argue about the biggest part of the case, which is the non-economic damages and the impact that this is going to have on his life. Because that's what the plaintiff's lawyers are spending their time on, and they're doing—they're getting very creative, and they're referencing the things that you just—you just referenced, right? You just referenced yep. celebrities and, and and all that, and and they're equating it to that. And what is the defense bar doing in response to that? Well, they're terrified. They're absolutely terrified. And and uh, I have so many defense juries. I hear it like, hey, I, I I can't talk about money. Are you kidding me? And my response is, if you don't talk about money early and often, you're going to get your ass kicked. <laughs> Because uh, they're Absolutely. talking about money, we had we, we we and I know that you know about this case, uh, but we went up against uh, Nick Rowley in L.A. last year, and he got up in front of this jury, and in the first sentence of his opening statement, said, "I want a hundred and forty million dollars. That's what I want, and I'm going to prove to you that's that's what my client deserves." That's the first sentence. 
(laughs) Okay, that didn't happen 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Exactly. And, And so I look at our attorney and I said, if you don't attack that $140 million and put Nick Rowley on trial, he's going to get $140 million. This isn't a case of admitted liability. And so I convinced these guys to stand up and to say that what Mr. Rowley just said is absolutely absurd. It's absolutely absurd. It's unnecessary. And I think everybody in this courtroom knows why he's doing this. And we ended up putting the plaintiff's counsel and that award on trial. We, we, we didn't say anything bad about the plaintiff. We made it about the ridiculous figure that came out. And in the end, uh, Nick walked out of the courtroom with roughly $6.5 million, and he was very, very unhappy. Yeah. Well, I've had two <laughs> jury trials against Nick Rowley, and he is very good at what he does. Um, yeah. And he, he does exactly what you said. And you raised a good point. When I first started trying cases a long time ago, um, neither side really talked about money. Never. Neither or side, at the end. At the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the end. At the end, plaintiff's counsel would talk about it and maybe suggest some numbers almost sheepishly. In the last 10 to 15 years, they've completely changed the way they try cases. They used to think it would be off-putting to bring up big numbers up front, and, and you know they don't want to they don't want to um, scare the jury. They have studied it. These plaintiffs lawyers are good. They study. They use psychology yeah. um, to, to to use it. And and what I try to tell defense lawyers is that psychology. It's the study of humans, not not plaintiffs. You know, it's not the yeah. study of plaintiffs. So what works for plaintiffs' counsel works for you. So if I'm in a trial now where they haven't asked for a number in voir dire, I'm like, ka-ching. That, I'm shocked. That's, 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 right, I'm shocked. If they haven't asked for an opening, to be blunt, we've pretty much won. Um, so, so we have this thing. Look, they've changed the way they try cases. The defense has to change the way they try cases. We haven't. And the way you change it is you have to give a number. So we give a number, and it's, we've got a chapter in the book on it. We give yeah. a number in every single trial, even when we're going for a defense verdict. And, and like you just said, yep, we give yep. that number early, often. And the one thing we learned in a case where we're monitoring against Nick Rowley um, is that it never goes up. The defense counsel in that one doubled his number come closing. And we about lost our mind. So it's early, yeah. often, and it doesn't go up. And, and by the way, thank you for citing me very often in your book. I really yeah. appreciate that. But no, back, you, back, back to the psychology, person. back to the psychology, that's the whole concept of uh, priming. You prime yeah. the jury. And, and you said this war starts in jury selection because they're going to start talking about money in jury selection. And if the defense doesn't, they're in big, big trouble. And the same thing with opening statement. But the level of dis- discomfort, it's really hard for many defense attorneys to buy in to that system because I think they're absolutely terrified of talking about money. And I think that especially in, in my CLEs and speeches, I'm trying to get – this sounds like you and your firm have already cracked the code. But I, I think the way, probably the way attorneys were trained prior to Reptile – is you just you just don't bring this stuff up because it's going to make you look bad. Or here's my favorite myth, and this is a complete myth. If I talk about money as a defense attorney, I'm admitting liability. I don't think that's true at all, Bob. No, it's it's not even close. And um, we give a number in every single jury trial. All of my partners, all of our attorneys, 
and we get defense verdicts. And um, finally, I've been vindicated by by some smart folks in the Midwest. There's that University of Iowa Law Review yes. um, testing that they did. Which you're, maybe maybe you tell your audience what it what it showed. But well, I can keep it, talking if you want. No, no, go, go ahead. And uh, I want to okay, tell you yeah. a little bit about our studies because we do this on a case by case basis. And I can tell you this: when we do our mock trials and focus groups, and the defense counsel insists on not giving a number, I mean, we get killed every single time. So, so maybe, here I'm going to have a question for you at the end of this. So, sure. um, this University of Iowa Law Review article did this study. I, it was a mock trial, and they did it two different ways: one where the defense gave a number, one where the defense didn't give a number. I think it was like a 2017 study, and I think it was like 800 participants. And what they found was, I thought they would find if if the defense gave a low number and the plaintiff gave a high number. If the defense gave a number, the outcomes were were less. They didn't quite find that correlation, but the, what they did find, which was something I've been waiting for forever, is that, and and I was actually kind of surprised. This University of Iowa Law Review, and you know, if you Google me, you're not going to see my name ever come up in a law review search. So these are really smart people. Um, what they found was, if you the defense gives a number a jury is more likely to return a defense verdict. If I got to say it twice, if yeah, the yeah. defense gives a number, which the whole defense industry does not want to do when they're going for a defense verdict. I mean, yep. you, you talk to some insurance people and they're like, no, well, I, I get it. You know, give, give a number in some cases, but not in this case. I mean, we, we really get in a defense verdict. Oh, sure. Okay. But if you give a number, you are more likely to get a defense verdict if you give a number. And I was just like, I couldn't believe it. So um, it's probably the first law review article I've ever read in my life. I've never written one. But anyway, just a simple trial lawyer. Um, so what do, you, what do you think about that? Do you have any ideas, doctor, why, why that might be true? That um, I've got one thought, but. Well, yeah, there's, there's, there's a couple of things. I think that it's important to again, when you're talking about damages is to, well, again, you say, you know, I have a duty to my client to talk to you about damages. I'm not admitting any guilt or liability whatsoever. And to put on a more reasonable uh, damages, alternative damages argument, I think jurors respect that because if you just don't even bring it up, well, now that there's a whole, you know, they call anchoring the whole anchoring effect where if they only have the one number to go to, everything's going to be anchored to that number. And I, lo I love it when the plaintiff attorney asks for $150 million and the, the defense doesn't say anything. And then the jurors in our mock trials say, well, you know what? 150 is crazy. Let's cut that down to 100. We'll show them and we'll give the defense. <laughs> a, it's, it's still $100 million. And so I, I do think I think it, uh, the jury respects the defense when they put on the alternative damages case and it, it brings them back to the voice of of reason. Whereas if they only have the inflated model, which is the lottery ticket model, um, there's really nothing to compare it to. Wow. Um, so I completely agree. You said the word uh, reasonable, which is one of yeah. our three themes, three themes that we use in every trial. My goal in every jury trial, if possible, and sometimes it's difficult, 
is to be the most reasonable person in the room. I want to be the most reasonable person in front of the jury. I want to be the most reasonable person. And what I think happens is you're fighting liability, right? We want a defense verdict. So, so you're, you're fighting it, and we're fighting it. Just because we gave a number doesn't mm-hmm. mean we're just going straight to damages, and we're spending weeks on liability. But I think it's exactly what you said, Doctor, which is – and, and you're trying to be – I'm trying to be the most reasonable person. Explain why we're not at fault, why our product didn't hurt someone or whatever it might be. Um, but then when you go to damages, here's another opportunity to be the most reasonable person in the room. So if you're able to give a much lesser number and you're able to justify it, you're able to explain to the jury why your non-economic number of, say, you know, several million versus 150 million – is reasonable and will get this person on the road to recovery and you're able to argue it. I've got two chapters on non-economic damages in yeah. the book. Uh, if you're able to argue it in a reasonable way, the jury's going to say, wow, uh, Mr. Tyson, you know, that kind of makes sense. This guy's talking about, you know, Kobe Bryant or some, <laughs> some well, not Kobe Bryant anymore. And, and God, that is, that is very sad. But the, I've had Kobe Bryant reference, you know, he makes 25 million a year. Um, and they'll they'll be use, whatever town you're in. They use a sports figure yep. from there, you know, <laughs> yep. a quarterback or whatever. Um, and and they're going to say, what what relevance does that have to this case? Why did they bring it up? Mr. Tyson explained non-economic damages in a reasonable way. That makes sense to me. You know what? And you know what are you saying about liability was pretty reasonable too. I yep. I don't know that we ever get to damages. It's another way for you to show that you're reasonable. Right. And that and I think by arguing damages in an enlightened, educated and engaging way, you're showing that you're a reasonable person and you're going to gain more credibility on your liability arguments. And that's what I it will is. Say, that's what yeah, it is. I, I think we're in agreement. Right. Yep. And then I'll say, you know, I, I didn't I read the law review article and they, they really didn't um, they didn't really say why. But I. I I agree with you and you agree with me. So I go with our reasons. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's definitely uh, true. And uh, we're running out of time here, but there's one more topic I want to talk to you about, which I don't think is in your book. If it is, I haven't gotten to it yet. But the whole concept, I posted this on LinkedIn the other day and got a lot of responses on it. But the one, the, so you're hearing about these nuclear verdicts in the media, on the internet, social media. I, I really think there's a lot of nuclear settlements going on that we never hear about. What, what, what are your thoughts on um, the nuclear settlement? Because some insurance companies or clients, they figure out that they're pretty much screwed. They don't want to have the nuclear verdict, so they just end up paying the piper, and they lose a lot of money anyway. Yep, that that might even be a bigger problem for the insurance insurance companies. Um, no, they're, they're well aware of it. That That is... That is why you know a lot in the, a lot of the folks in the defense industry are paying attention to this because it 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 creeps it at least creeps across over to settlements. Think about it: you're in a mediation, and plaintiff's counsel is able to cite a similar case in Atlanta, you know that that hit for a hundred million um, because it's been in all the papers and they have access to it. It's going to increase. For, forget if he was able to get it. If he personally was able to get it, then he's going to. You know that mediator is going to be saying, you know, you know, Jim just hit for you know seventy four million downtown. So case not that dissimilar from this, you know. Um, so yes, it's definitely leading to bigger settlements for sure. 
And I've gotten these, yeah, you know, I get copies of these emails from these big time, and I, I swear they're all cut and pasted and, and you've received these, but I'll kind of outline what the email says. It says, you know, dear Joe, you know, I don't want you to lose your job. I don't want, yeah, your insurance company is a good company. I don't want your claims adjuster to lose their job. But, you know, I just hit on a $50 million verdict. If you just give me $25 million by Friday at noon, everything's <laughs> over. Everybody's safe. Because if you don't give me $25 million by Friday, it's going to double on Monday morning. And then if you don't give it to me on Monday morning, I'm going to ask the jury for $150. Balls in your court. A lot of these emails have been coming, and you know who's sending them, but now everybody's I sending do. these, and they're getting very ballsy with the emails, and it, it's it's putting a lot of fear, a lot of fear into the insurance industry. Hey, you know what? In fairness, I, I give a world of kudos to the plaintiff's bar. I mean, they are very sophisticated yep. now, and now that they've shared information with each other, very sophisticated at setting up insurance companies and setting up setting up defendants, um, and they share it all with each other. So, you know, there's there's several um, you know innovative, smart guys, um, but they they share it not just statewide but but nationwide. So we're seeing a lot of that, Bill. I agree. Well, Bob, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You can get your book uh, Amazon.com would be the best place. Yeah, that'd be perfect. Amazon.com. Everybody uh, get Bob Tyson's book about nuclear verdicts. Bob, thank you so much. I'd love to have you back on again sometime in the very, very near future. And I told you, I want to do a CLE with you live in front of an important group. I think that'd be really fun. Me too, Bill. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, Bob. Bye. All right. Bye. Well, there you have it, folks. Bob Tyson, author of the new nuclear verdict uh, book and uh, I highly encourage you to buy it. It's really, really good stuff. That concludes episode four of the Litigation Psychology Podcast. Again, this is Dr. Bill Kanaski. Feel free to reach out if you have uh, questions. Kanaski at courtroomsciences.com. Thank you. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Litigation Psychology Podcast presented by CSI. For more information, visit courtroomsciences.com.